Hello, dear listeners. Before we get to the episode, a little housekeeping. We're changing the way we roll out our podcasts. As you know, we typically split our episodes into two parts. The first part is available for everyone. The second part is for paying subscribers only. Going forward, we will be posting both parts together in the subscriber RSS feed. So if you're already a paying subscriber, you get everything in the subscriber feed you're already using. You can get rid of the free feed. If you're not a paying subscriber, nothing will change for you. But if you would like access to the bonus material, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. We appreciate all of your support. On to the show. So, I mean, are you, do you get a sense that, that, that the Ukraine crisis is falling out of the focus of everyone's lives as it has sort of been for the last three weeks? I mean, you're saying you didn't know Biden was in Europe. You know, I mean, all of us that are following this are, you know, need to have opinions about what happened in Europe now, and I need to develop one soon. But uh, I don't know. Uh, are you, are you, well, just to clarify, I think. I think I was vaguely aware that Biden was in Europe. I was being maybe slightly hyperbolic, but I'm not generally aware of of the major recent developments. So I think that it seems to me there has been a shift over the past week, week and a half. It's just not capturing, it's not consuming the, the debate and discourse as much as it was the first two weeks, which is only natural. I mean, people... People can sustain this level of attention for only so long, especially on a foreign pol- foreign policy issue, however impactful it's going to be on 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 us in ways that we don't totally realize. But yeah, I think um, I'm seeing more stuff about wokeness. People are getting back into the woke wars and stupid, silly things, and it still feels a little bit off putting to me that people would engage in that kind of thing on Twitter when, you know, people are still quite literally dying and Russia is being ever more brutal. I mean, that I'm very much aware of, that it does seem to be a relentless attack and one that has no boundaries from the Russian standpoint. They're willing to just destroy and kill with, there's just like no moral, there's absolutely no moral compass. And it just, it sort of does make me wonder whether or not Putin believes in heaven and and presumably hell. And I wonder what he thinks about when he goes to sleep at night. That will, will there be an accounting? Anyway, that's like a little bit of an aside. But, jeez, jeez, but, jeez! That's early in the podcast to be going there, man. Um, phew. Uh, but, but let me just say one more thing about that. I mean, and I was telling a friend this the other day that one of the reasons I believe in an afterlife, heaven, and hell, and I put emphasis on the latter for a reason, is because. Without that, there is no ultimate justice. There are people who do have to spend perhaps not an eternity, but preferably a very long time in hell. Yes. And I think that we we are now aware of one of those people if we hadn't been before. Right. So that, that gives me a certain level of comfort that even if he gets away with his shit, he will be held to account. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think this podcast <laughs> can go in two directions. One can be that, as you well know, I, I have problems with the very concept of justice, and we can explore that and, and the implications therein, because uh, so that's, that's sort of one, and then a sort of a, a sub-route of that might be something along the lines of, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess you'd say that, that, you know, intent is all that matters. So, you know, 
I mean, is, is total war never justifiable, I guess? Is it always an immoral thing? Or, you know, uh, it, uh, anyway, we can go in that direction. I'm, I'm more maybe intrigued by the other one about people losing attention. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell me what you think. What's your impression? Yeah, I think so. Do you remember there was a, there was a, uh, a weird tweet by Elon Musk about a week in? I don't know. I don't have it in front of me now. I, you just r- reminded me of it. You know, in the first, like, week, Elon Musk, you know, was uh, sending those, like, Starlink terminals, which is, like, satellite internet terminals to Ukraine. And, yeah. you know, Zelensky had asked him. And he was – then, like, three days later, he, he – he shit posted something on Twitter. It was some image of, I don't know, basically how, you know, Ukraine had, uh, uh, hold on, let me see if I can even find it. Um, but I, I mean, the point of it, I'm not going to look for it now. It'll take too long. But, uh, the, you know, saying basically that Ukraine had become sort of just a, a totemic thing, another thing in the discourse, you know. Um, and everyone sort of attacked him, like, how dare you, Elon, you know. Even after you do the good thing, you're back to, you know, shit posting and whatever. But even then it struck me as probably right, right, that, you know, this is any one of these things is just another shiny, right? Um, the the new shiny of the of the of the discourse, and we you know we play our little games, and then you know it's no longer resonating so much, and people move on. I think Ben Judah tweeted the other day that this is a huge challenge for the Ukrainians themselves, who, to be fair, I think have have done an amazing job of uh, taking uh, this war and having it really resonate as much as it has across the, you know, uh, in, in public consciousness more broadly than just uh, among the countries that are receiving the refugees and actually feeling the brunt of it, you know. Um, I, I, I'm personally struck by, you know, the kind of parallels for me when I think about the, uh, the wars in the Balkans, um, and I've written about this actually at the American Interest a while ago, how those wars were never perceived as, you know, wars for values, wars from freedom and stuff like that. Um, and largely because, you know, there was no real info operation back then. There wasn't even an internet back then to do it. So it was all mediated through the press. Um, and it's more accurate to say that the wars of the Balkans weren't wars for universal values. They were wars for against territorial aggression, you know. And that remains still the, the correct way to look at those wars. Uh, it's a, a, a war of conquest and a war of, you know, perhaps, uh, I don't know, you can use ethnic. Uh, I don't know if you'd apply that, you know, in Ukraine. But sure, why not? The Ukrainian people are, are being pushed out. And uh, we haven't actually heard the word ethnic cleansing in there yet uh, used. I haven't seen it in, in, uh, in sort of uh, the description of Russian, you know, territorial goals. Um, I've heard genocide. Genocide, yeah, uh, but but not ethnic cleansing, right? And and um, certainly no one's mentioned ancient hatreds or anything like that. Um, but the 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 parallel has always been that to me, and and you know how how better the Ukrainians have been in framing this as something bigger and wider and having it resonate. But then add on top of that our sort of you know goldfish like attention spans in the public sphere, as you will, and that really you know. The Ukraine TV show is now in its, you know, fourth season or whatever, fourth week, fifth week. And uh, people are like, oh, I need variety. You know, I go back to, you know, watch, you know, another show that I used to like, The Woke Wars and stuff like that. And so I feel, you know, I guess the the other thing that struck me, uh, I remember you were saying uh, when the war started, you're like, oh, now the woke stuff seems so silly. Um, 
I had a similar reaction, except, as you know, I've always sort of felt like the woke wars were silly. And before the Ukraine invasion, I was coming around to the idea that the woke wars were really important, you know? Um, <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, they are silly. I was right. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, I, 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 guess, I guess to me, let me throw this out to you. Um, the weird sort of uh, thought I've had about this is that all the talk of universal values is something that gets people emotional, but it's all operating in this really sort of dumb and uh, emotional register that is our current discourse, including woke wars and, you know, freedom and liberty and, you know, universal rights and stuff like that. But actually, it doesn't matter that much to people. They just get bored and they're like, well, I, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this. So what I mean is like, you know, I, I wrote that essay a while ago about like, you know, the unserious generation and wasn't a, it wasn't directly about this, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's some extension to that at this point that, you know, I guess, you know, on your side of the debate, a more serious, morally serious generation would, would take these sorts of, um, you know, struggles for, for values as more important. To me, it's, it's slightly inverted. It's that, it's that I've never really seen any of these fights as, you know, really about that. I, I don't take that stuff, you know, I mean, I take it seriously. I, I just don't think it's really descriptive of what's going on at any one point. And the fact that people are just sort of uh, glossing over it uh, is also some, somehow damning to me about the whole sort of discourse about values. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Just sort of spitballing here. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess one problem, if that's the right word, in the, in the kind of Ukraine coverage now is that there isn't something obvious for casual observers to latch on to. That it's it's more or less like what happened what was happening yesterday is what's happening today, you know, just a grinding assault and something resembling a stalemate. And I think that if you can't, if there isn't a narrative that has some kind of progression, or I suppose the opposite, then it's unclear how that casual listener or reader is going to stay engaged. I mean, that just, I think that's just a reality. It doesn't, I think, speak to any kind of inherent, you know, human weakness, or it's just the way that we are. I, I do, I do wish that I was more aware of what my attention span was, say 10 years ago, I, I do wonder, when the Arab Spring started in early 2011. I certainly was focusing on that, you know, pretty much 24 seven. So I was probably biased in that regard, where I assumed that most people were following it very closely for quite some time. But I wonder, the casual American, and I wasn't living in the U.S. at that time, I was living in the Middle East. I, I wonder what the casual American who was very enthusiastic about the, the Arab uprisings at the start, and they saw this as a vindication of Western ideals of freedom and democracy, and they saw a part of themselves in Arabs for the first time. So instead of Arabs and Muslims being the other, mm. there was now a shared experience against against authoritarianism and, and for democracy and freedom. Obviously, we later found out over the course of 2011 that it wasn't that simple. And I, I assume it would be interesting to go back and look at how how it was covered by major news stations and New York Times front page coverage and so forth. I mean, now uh, the New York Times every single day since the Ukraine war started has featured it above the fold as the number one 
story, I believe. Maybe yeah. there, I don't. I don't know if there was an exception to that, but it's they're still going strong in that regard. And I don't know how representative the New York Times is when it comes to capturing the mood of a nation, but that still says something because the last time foreign policy was the number one issue for three to four weeks for the New York Times. I don't know when that was. I I, I think that it's it's not so much about how the media is covering it. It's, I, I think maybe our relationship to media has changed. Um, I think I've, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Uh, it was many years ago now, while I was still at the American Interest, but early days. And we went to some, um, had to have been like late 2000s. We went to some, um, you know, sort of publishing conference. And I forget the guy who was speaking. Was he from LinkedIn? Maybe the CEO of LinkedIn was giving a talk on the business side of things. And he talked about, you know, uh, the news section, but also sort of, you know, opinions. And um, he, he was saying that, you know, news and opinions, the, ba- the way he thought about it, that they have to compete with, um, they're just another source of entertainment, he said. You know, like, they, there's so many hours in the day that uh, uh, readers' eyeballs, you know, will be devoted to these things apart from, you know, the, their regular lives, such as, um, uh, you know, take, picking up the kids at school, doctors, you know, the, doing the regular job and stuff like that, happy hour. And so uh, outside of that, you know, there's X number of hours and news and, and opinion and all the rest of it. Analysis has to compete with, you know, Netflix and, and whatever else. Um, I, I found that striking at the time. And just now, you know, hearing you talk about it, I wonder maybe what's changed is that there was a sense before that, you know, you read, if you were a, uh, considered yourself uh, a, uh, I don't know, a responsible citizen, if you, if you will, like it was, you read the papers yeah. not as entertainment, but because as an educated and responsible citizen, you needed to know what was going on in the world. So it wasn't, it, it's even the frame that you put it is just like, you know, nothing's happening, so people, their attention wanders. And it's, it's it, that's in, very much in the paradigm of, you know, we have X number of hours devoted to like extra work things. And, you know, uh, if, if it's not attention grabbing enough, we won't devote time to the news. I think that might have changed in the last, you know, I don't know, 20 years or something like that, that that shift has yeah. happened. And so, so, you know, just because there aren't any, it's, you know, it's slightly uh, repetitive, I guess, and as wars end up being, it's, I forget who wrote that, right? It's, uh, it's uh, moments of sheer terror punctuating long periods of, like, mind-crushing boredom or something like that, right? Hmm. Um, it, uh, for, 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 I have an intuition that a, a, a responsible citizen, that wouldn't matter for them. Now, of course, newspaper person would have to find the story. Still, stories are important. You, you, you wouldn't read the paper and say, nothing news happened, you know, still people getting killed. Like, there are always stories to be found and whatnot. But I, I don't think that the the onus would be to keep it so interesting to keep people's attention on it. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the attention was something that a, a responsible citizen felt it his duty to devote to the news such as it was wherever, you know? And I feel that's changed maybe. Yeah, that, that's a really good point because even just you talking about the quote unquote responsible citizen, it yeah. sounds so antiquated it wouldn't even occur to me to think that people are waking up in the morning and thinking, what should I read to be a responsible citizen? Right. I mean, I just, 
also perhaps that kind of language has gone out of fashion. It seems to be the province of like, um, you know, four person families with a white male at the table waking up before he goes to work in his suit and tie and he's reading the print version of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, it, it, it seems like it's part of a different era. I don't know why we sort of associate reading print newspapers with white males. Right. But, I mean, for, or you're, maybe you're, that's just, <laughs> you're, 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 you, your family, you're, you're, uh, you have two parents and, and, and a brother, right? So you were a four person family. Did your father wake up in the morning, and read the paper? No, no. You never had like, uh, the New York times or something delivered or whatever. And that was just there. And there would be like paper reading or at least on weekends. No. Maybe my mom, I think my mom might have a little bit more. I think we mostly got the newspaper, especially the Sunday newspaper for like TV guide and kind of like maybe some, some advertise. I mean, I just, I don't, I remember it being in the house. I just don't remember my parents really waking up, uh, but I'd have to think about that. Maybe I can ask my parents and, and see if that's something they did or what we use the newspaper for. I definitely remember that there was some like TV thing that we, like if you wanted to know what was on the channels and stuff, you know what I'm talking about? I, I mean, to be fair, you know, my dad actually, you know, we were living on Long Island, so he would commute. And so he'd actually go up and like leave reasonably early. He'd pick up the paper and read it on the on the train. I know that. And, you know, usually then like paper would come back with him in the evening. Um, it was sort of like a family ritual. We would watch uh, network news and then, you know, we'd probably watch NewsHour, PBS. That was like a thing. I, you know, I'd usually watch it, but, uh, you know, but that was just a, okay, a ritual. Yeah, so. So my dad to this very day watches a B world ABC World News tonight every single night. It's mm -hmm. like one of his rituals. So maybe for him, it's less the print paper and more um, visual in that regard. And I've always been surprised by this because I don't have, um, I mean, I have a TV screen, but I don't have any kind of way to watch normal things besides you know Netflix, HBO, and whatever. So the idea that someone would have a daily routine that a show comes at a particular time and it's part of a morning or evening ritual. That I think is also like an older person thing. I don't know young people who really have rituals in quite that way. So I think it all just goes to show that there is there is a shift in how we how we consume media, but I, I don't know. I think white people read newspapers more. <laughs> That's what I would say. Well, if I, I mean, had to like overgeneralize. To be fair, right? I mean, I, yeah, no one really reads the paper, the newspaper paper. I mean, they read on their phone or tablet if they're like that. I don't think, you know, I, I know there's still print d deliveries, but I think those are really going to a dying generation. I don't know anyone in our peer set, white or otherwise, who takes the the paper, maybe they get the Sunday thing delivered and they read, you know, the culture stuff and yeah, whatever. Uh, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's a generational thing, but, but, you know, more to get to the point though, is it's, it's that these habits, right. Are maybe changing our relationship to all sorts of things, including those things that I think you hold most dear, this concept, you know, and that, that's what I, I want to sort of push on here is like, do you think that, do you think that that uh, that people just don't take uh, these values seriously? That it's just sort of a crescendo in a kind of narrative, not unlike watching some, I don't know, uh, some uh, miniseries that 
see, this is because I don't watch any miniseries. I can't even point to one. But, but you know, that has like a narrative <laughs> arc and has sort of like a, a moral apex. And everyone's like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And then, you know, crescendo. And then it's resolved. And then they move on to the next thing. That, that in fact, you know, all these, you know, uh, what should be quite serious and important and heavy things are just boiled down to uh, entertainment and, and, and a kind of, I don't know, very like superficial uh, frivolous approach to actually very heavy, supposedly weighty things. I guess people just want to be told stories. That's really what it comes down to. They want, they want a climax and a crescendo and all of that. I mean, look, I, I think part of it too is we become a more individu- individualistic culture in certain ways. and Or maybe that's not even the right word. Maybe it's more narcissistic, stuck in our own minds, that there's a kind of self-indulgence, especially if you look at the woke discourse or even, um, let me be careful here, there was an article <laughs> in the Huffington Post, which which was pretty much, an, I guess, like a long op-ed about going back to work in the office after two years after having gained 70 pounds mm. and like using that as a window into like struggle. Mm-hmm. And look, I don't mean to say that that's not a challenging situation for someone to be in, however. but there is something, <laughs> however, <laughs> I mean, there is just, it seems so, there seems like to a profound disjuncture. Like you read an article like that and then you read about the heroism of Ukrainian volunteers on the front lines and you're like, we live in an advanced society. We're at peacetime, at least at home. And there's a decadence that arises out of that where we do become more narcissistic, that we do engage in ultimately frivolous. I mean, they're frivolous in a sense. They do speak to something deeper. And this is always the tension when talking about wokeness. It seems very frivolous and ridiculous even on the surface, but it does reflect profound changes and debates about who we are as human beings, what we value, what the nature of truth and morality are. So I don't want to discount them as being completely frivolous, but the way they're discussed is very surface level and superficial. And it just seems to me like I I feel almost guilt. There's a sense of guilt and shame that we as a country cannot rise to an occasion in part because we don't need to rise to an occasion. No one's attacking us at our borders. And I think that that's what's required to focus the mind. You need to have, to go back to what we've talked about in other podcast episodes, you need to have an enemy. You need to have someone, a wolf at the door, so to speak, who's bearing down on you. And you feel that things are finally truly existential. That's what arouses us to action. We don't have that. And we haven't had that for a long time. You know, I, I, um, I'll dig it up for the, from the show notes. Uh, I think Ben Judah, retweeted some clip of, you know, American volunteers in Ukraine. Uh, There's like a building burning in the background. And, you know, there's a guy just saying, uh, welcome to another day in paradise. Uh, Napalm bomb fight over there. You know, mortars are flying, explosions everywhere. And, and, uh, and, and what struck me about it, I mean, I, I, I was talking to Ben. He was like, oh, you know, are these, are these uh, actual soldiers? You know, I I think he, he might've thought that this is, uh, the U.S. sending sort of like covert aid. But when I watched the clip or something like that, 
the immediate thing to popped into my mind was again the kind of like frivolousness of these like people who maybe these were veterans and you know are going back to it and uh, but they were they were they were like role playing in some sort of weird way you know what I mean and role playing for the camera for there I mean it was just like a an iPhone shot or something you know like from a phone camera but it was it just felt like you know trying to some, somehow channel some lines from. Uh, I don't know, like Full Metal Jacket or like Apocalypse Now or something like that, you know? Yeah, they're in an action movie. They're in an action movie of some sort. And, you know, again, uh, whatever, people go fight for wars and it's good that there's, even though, you know, I've read some analysis how dangerous these like foreign battalions are because you get completely, you know, sometimes you get veterans who have had wartime experience. Sometimes you get veterans who've had wartime experience a long time ago and they've gone to seed. So they're kind of <laughs> fat and inept. And like, you just get like a real mix of people and they, you know, friendly fire incidents and all sorts of stuff happen as a result. They're less disciplined, less training. Um, but it's, uh, uh, that also just struck me as this kind of, you know, uh, again, kind of a frivolousness, even though they're risking their lives, you know, for, uh, for a very serious and important fight. There was this kind of uh, sense of, of performativeness to it, you know what I mean? Um, that that also just kind of put me off on the on the on the whole thing. Um, yeah, I remember one article I read about the foreign battalions, and I think there was some military analyst who was like giving advice to people who are thinking about going to Ukraine, and he's like, "This is not this is not a time to think that you can just kill some Russians and then take a selfie." Yeah. And even the fact that that that's like something that people are concerned about, like whether that's what this performative aspect, I think, is telling. Yeah. That said, who knows? I mean, we don't know exactly. Well, I, I suppose some people do. If you read like pretty detailed accounts of World War One, Two, and so forth, you can probably get some. Although those were like extremely, they were so extremely frightening that maybe it's not the right comparison. We'd have to pick. A more comparable war. A war. I mean, all wars are terrible, but you know. And I do wonder if, in some wars, there is an an ironic distance that the protagonists feel they have that it's so heavy, it's so serious that you have to find a way to make it seem less so. That and this is where gallows humor comes from when you're thinking about death and talking about death and facing it sometimes making jokes about it in a way that may seem inappropriate is appropriate because that's how we contend with the prospect of loss. I agree. I agree. I mean, and, you know, I guess soldiers are, 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 are you know, the, uh, the masters of gallow humor, gallows humor, especially amongst themselves. There's something different, though, when you, 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 you create this culture of, of, you know, instant sharing to the internet and stuff like that. And then you're, you're, then you're mugging for the world somehow rather than, you know, commiserating and, and saying really grotesque things to your, you know, your trench buddies, you, many of who, you know, might die in the next second, and yourself as well. Um, there's something else to it, and you know, I mean, I, I think the 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 useful parallel to talk about this is is in fact that maybe the Spanish Civil War, where Orwell went to serve, and a lot of people went to 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 fight, you know, uh, for that cause, um, and you know, I. I, I <laughs> God knows what Orwell would have been like with a cell phone, but you know, he had to fight the war, uh, you know, take notes while he was doing it, uh, get wounded and then get out at some point and then write a book about it. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a heavy book, right? I mean, it's, it's a wonderful book, homage to Catalonia. If you haven't, if our readers haven't haven't. read it or you haven't read it, it's really great. Um, and, uh, but you know, I, there's a first. There's a level of analytic distance because he's writing it afterwards and sort of trying to to 
come up with a kind of uh, summary and, you know, what it's done about his thinking, about politics, about the world, about communism, about fascism, all the rest of it, um, which, again, we're, we're – we can let's even give the benefit of the doubt of the the guy who's mugging for the the camera maybe if he if he maybe in a few years he'll go and write that book afterwards but there's something there's something uh that that even the possibility of sharing in the very moment um uh, it 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 strips a, a certain kind of i don't know weight of the whole thing you know even i mean i i'm I stopped after about a week and a half. It was too much. Uh, but if, you know, if, if you really are uh, devoted to following this war, uh, there are these telegram channels, a lot of them run by Ukrainian, uh, you know, uh, government affiliated or just, you know, Ukrainian uh, patriots who are sort of fighting it. You get, you can get up to the second sort of footage of, uh, of all sorts of stuff. You can really participate in this war if you really want to, like mentally. Um, I, I just found it, you know, first, very difficult, uh, incredibly distracting, incredibly draining. And actually, I, I found I couldn't actually uh, concentrate enough to, to write anything that I thought was worthwhile after watching that sort of stuff. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's it's not I don't I don't mean to necessarily uh, damn us and really get into all this talk of decadence. But there is something that's changed in the world, right, that has to do with how we process and interact with events, and clearly it's about the mediation of technology, that has changed everything. And I wonder, and I, you know, again, I, I even take your point on wokeness. I, I think, you know, uh, in, engaging in a lot of the, the woke stuff is, is as much a reflection of something that is going on. So it's real. I'm not saying it's not real. Um, it's maybe, maybe I'm, I'm realizing that what I dislike about it is the kind of engagement that we're, we're all collectively having with something that is real, and that that's a product of I don't know, just deeper social changes and there's no going back to, to a different kind of engagement. I just think that has a big impact, for example, for your project and any talk of, you know, uh, the importance of values for anchoring a worldview or anchoring, you know, even like a strategy uh, for the United States. You have to basically, you know, sort of boil it down into a very uh, simplistic and uh compelling, dramatic uh, arc of some sort. And I don't know, there was a point where, where Biden was briefing TikTok celebrities, I remember, not Biden himself, oh, yeah. but his team was, you know, to try and, 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 and get the message out. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I guess there's, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. This is what it is. This is how we have to do things. I, do, do you, do you, are you disquieted though, by the fact that, that, you know, even, even if there is support for, the kind of um, you know moral vision that you think is really important for the United States that necessarily it's going to be a lot shallower than you know perhaps it was you know during World War II or you know the period after World War II when we had Look, more serious people. Yeah, it's going to be shallow, but uh, I don't think my project is necessarily persuading tens of millions of Americans that they have to prepare themselves for a long moral and political struggle against authoritarian allies i don't think i don't think you need that level of that level of mass support for a foreign policy vision what you need to do is capture the minds and hearts i suppose of people who focus on foreign policy people who write about it and policymakers governments and that's where you have to focus attention that you hope that you can cut through 
the noise with a particular group of people who are quite influential and who can actually shape U.S. policy in the years and decades to come. I guess that would be my hope because I, I don't obviously you want people to be sympathetic to that. And I think that's certainly possible that even if they're even if they have short attention spans, they can at least have an ideological sympathy to the project. If you tell them about it and say, hey, this is important, this is in line with our values, this is what we stand for, and it matters, I think you, you'll get a lot of Americans who say, yes, count me in. Now, are they going to care that much a week after they tell you that? Maybe not, but I don't know if you necessarily need that. And again, we don't know exactly how this worked in the pre-technological era, that, you know, how many people really were engaged when it came to thinking about wars their countries were fighting on a daily basis. I mean, you know, Vietnam, to take an example, although we were very implicated in that ourselves, that's maybe not the best example. But, you know, we don't know if 70 or 80 or 90% of the population was following this extremely closely every single day. Um, maybe there's some polling. I, I don't know. Actually, that'll be pretty interesting to look into. But we also have to be careful not to idealize the past, that the past was this time where citizens were engaged, that citizens had long attention spans. It probably wasn't like that. Okay, but on, uh, Vietnam's a really good and interesting example, right? I think that that what uh, the the rifts that Vietnam opened up in America, in American society, right, was that um, I think, you know, Joe American, you know, the Nixon's silent majority and the rest of them, they had, I think, pretty profoundly understood and imbibed, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, Truman Doctrine kind of, uh, you know, post-World War II, setting it up as as a long struggle against uh, authoritarian communism, right? And so they, you know, they knew Vietnam was happening. It sort of crept up and, you know, our commitments kept going up. Maybe they weren't paying, I, again, I'm basing this just sort of on uh, a very broad and sort of 30,000 feet understanding of, of the situation. But, right, they, they understood we were getting committed and the government was basically telling them, well, you know, we're, we're fighting for the freedom um, uh, of the Vietnamese people who are resisting communism. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of kids on campuses and activists start saying, no, this is a gross injustice, what we're doing, we're killing a lot of people, we have to get out, and, you know, uh, we're sinners in Vietnam, and, 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 and that. And so, you know, you had these, these anti-war protests um, going up against, uh, you know, what we were doing there. Uh, and I, you know, and, and this was, I think, you know, again, sort of the, 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 the core American voter uh, was kind of surprised and shocked at this. And there was a sense of like, who are these anti-American, you know, long-haired hippies going against, you know, a, a, a just war? And it's been the sort of reckoning with that that sort of, uh, you know, has shaped politics uh, to a large extent that, that followed for quite a, quite a while, right? Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe it'd be interesting for, for you to wonder what side of what you have been on in the Vietnam War. I mean, uh, because it comes down to, again, uh, you talk about convincing people about the need to uh, fight a war for freedom against authoritarianism and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not like, uh, uh, like the North Vietnamese were, I mean, it's, it's interesting. They were fighting a, a, a war for uh, a basically an anti-colonial war against, against the French and, you know, a war of liberation. 
but also it's not like that they were a lovely regime and that what followed was, you know, uh, all that necessarily happy. So I, I just wonder where, where you would have been at that time, you know? Um, well, I'd probably be one of the anti-war protesters if the Iraq war is any indication. I mean, so I, I think that's probably well, a reasonable comparison. Because mm-hmm. you were young, maybe uh, during Iraq, but imagine, imagine, you know, uh, imagine you are a, uh, you're sort of the person you are now, and you're you're saying this, uh, you know, America's on the side of good, and and an authoritarian uh, government is trying to subdue uh, people who want to, you know, uh, basically come on our side. And yeah, sure, you know, there are leaders that we were bolstering in the, you know, democratic South that were corrupt and all sorts of things, but, you know, the people... But the South wasn't democratic, at least it wasn't for, I mean, for long, for various periods, depending on what what time we're looking at, it wasn't necessarily democratic. Could 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 you imagine, though, that had we prevailed in the Vietnam War, that, you know, South Vietnam would have actually gone the way, perhaps, of South Korea and actually have developed into something that would have been a, a, a bulwark? And, you know, if there was a partition or if the war was actually won, all of Vietnam might have sort of developed into something like that. Um, I, that's that's a, a one, I think, per- perfectly defensible prism through which to watch, to see a, an alternate history of that episode of the Cold War. Um, yeah, look, I would have preferred if the South Vietnamese would have won that, I mean, between the two choices that, that were available. I just don't know if that means that you you can prefer for a side to win without supporting the war itself. So you, you can maybe separate those things. So I could have still been an anti-war protester in Vietnam while still thinking that the the North Vietnamese communists were evil, terrible, and whatever. But I would just say, look, I don't think it's America's role to prop up a you know, a some a semi authoritarian kind of I don't want to say puppet state, because that's not always the way that our South Vietnamese proxies acted, but we're not talking about a representative democratic government that was accountable to its own people. So the idea that we would go in and support them against the communists, I just, I think there's so much going on there that it's not an easy one to kind of, um, to characterize one way or the other. But look, who knows what we would have thought? I mean, also, if I was, if I was growing up in the 60s, would I have liked the campus culture? I don't know. I mean, that probably would have had some effect on me, how I felt about the whole vibe. It also depends how old you were. I mean, you know, as a college student, you probably want to be like your other college students and be cool. So if everyone else is doing anti-war, then you'll do anti-war. If I was an older person who had a family, I might look at those college kids and be skeptical and I would have seen sexual liberation and all of that and the free love and being on communes. And I would have said, oh, look, I have a family. Um, We live in a house in the suburbs that vibe seems like it goes against what I believe in. So like, it's all, it's all contingent on where we, like where we would have sat at that particular time. If that, does that make sense no, to you? I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you talk about contingency like that. I mean, that's my starting point for almost everything is the contingency of these things. But, but you, you constantly make cases that are different <laughs> about, about the non-contingency about these values and narratives and the importance of sort of fighting for, you know, for for something, I, I I absolutely agree with you that the Vietnam no, War look, is not reducible to something like that. But I mean, I would argue to you that that international relations and also sorts of pol- foreign politics aren't reducible to comfortable little things like you know the fight against authoritarianisms by democracies. 
But look, Demir, I, I want to push back a little bit on the contingency issue because <laughs> I don't think that's an accurate description of my position. Go on. Look, I'm very, I'm very strong in what I believe in, and so that's me, Shadi. Yeah. I do. I would like to think that I'm understanding of people who don't share those convictions, in part because they're products of a different environment. So when I think about my Egyptian relatives. Um, which I've talked about before on the podcast, uh, they support evil things. I don't think they're evil. I think that if I had been born and raised in Egypt, there's a good chance I would have had a soft spot for dictatorship. So the fact that they don't like democracy, the fact that they oppose democracy and support whatever it might be, mass killing, brutal repression, I, I'm not willing to cast a permanent judgment on their souls. I don't think that there's a definitive statement to be made in that regard. I think they are products of a particular situation. It's an unfortunate one. And that's where I go back to my argument about how living under dictatorship twists the human spirit. And that that makes people less morally culpable, in my view. So I think that that's an argument for contingency. Yeah. Um I, yeah, no, I mean, I, I was just focusing on the, on the, you know, specifically on, on Vietnam, though, and, and this idea that... Yeah, well, that would have been, people would have been products of their own environment, whatever that might have been. Like, we, we only come to be the way we are because of our experiences. But then you're not relativizing yourself, though. You're, you're claiming, though, however, <laughs> that, that, you know, what you're arguing for is, in fact, has a, an element of truth, that, you know, democracy... Uh, you, you're making you're making you know analytic claims about democracy versus authoritarianism that democracy is the good because it somehow uh, comports with human nature and authoritarianism. This is what we talked about last episode. Authoritarianism is evil because it distorts human nature and leads to bad outcomes. You're making you know an analytic slash normative claim on this, and so you know uh, one could apply that to previous conflicts and and try and imagine where you might come out on them if you believe these things to be true rather than the products of your upbringing. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, I could just make a Shadi Hamid case for continuing the Vietnam War. That's the only point I'm making. Um, <laughs> that's, that's all. No, I see what you mean. But I think that you get at a very interesting tension that when I say that I believe something is true, what does that really mean from mm -hmm. like a metaphysical standpoint? you know, how how absolutely true is it? And if I do believe that something is absolutely true, how necessary is it for me to persuade other people that it's absolutely true? Or am I willing to kind of take a step back and say, hey, this is the conclusions that I've come to about the nature of democracy and why it's good. But you know what? Whatever other people want to believe, they can believe. You know, it's sort of similar to, I think, um, it's not quite the same, but with my um, evangelical theologian friend, Matthew Kamink, as part of our Fuller Seminary project, we have had some very interesting discussions about proselytization, and we joke about who wants to convert the other. And an interesting point has come up various, various times. If you believe something is true, then wouldn't it necessarily follow that it's incumbent upon you to share and spread that truth. And I, you know, that's a bit of a longer conversation. I personally um, do not feel any compulsion to convert people to Islam or to even 
I want people to know about Islam because I think it has major political implications, including on the questions that we're talking about, democracy versus autocracy and so forth. But do I ever feel a, feel a strong desire or need for people's souls to see a certain truth from a religious and spiritual standpoint on the level of belief and conscience? I It just doesn't occur to me. But then the question from an evangelical standpoint would be, because evangelicals, what do they, they share the good news, they share the gospel and so forth. So that that to me is a very interesting debate about what the implications of finding the truth are. If we believe something is true, do we have a responsibility to share it in a particular way? Um, right. Uh, yes. The, 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 the interesting thing to me, though, and this goes back to actually our, our Twitter spaces discussion is, you know, what's the role of a writer and, you know, what are we what are we trying to do? I, I find myself just sort of and, you know, I've, I've joked about this before that, that, that friends say this as well, that, you know, I'm, I'm arguing with myself in a lot of ways. Um, but that's sort of right, I think, you know, uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm sort of trying to think things through and, and make a case uh, as I see it. Like, you know, I, th- rather than what you were saying earlier is, is the importance of, you know, not even convincing the broader public of your views, but convincing the importance of convincing a small subset of, you know, elite policymakers that this is the, the right and correct sort of way. And again, you're making truth claims there, I think, um, Sometimes I, I mean, you're you're too subtle a writer to to outright you know be to be doing <laughs> that. You, but but you're 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 you are making truth claims about about authoritarianism versus democracy, right? Um, and uh, uh, well, yeah. So I don't know. I don't I don't know where 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 to to push you more on that. But I think well, it's, it's look. I'll say one more thing on this because yeah. it just occurred to me now listening to you that I guess for me, even if I don't persuade elite policymakers or other quote-unquote intellectuals of my views on democracy and the long struggle ahead, that wouldn't be the end of the world for me. Like there's still a certain, I feel it's my responsibility to say what I think is important and true. And then the rest is sort of up to God. There's only so much you can do to persuade other people. You put your views out there and you try to communicate as effectively as you can but then it's up to other people to decide whether or not they want to agree. And I guess I'm fine with the idea of being on the losing side of a debate perpetually. I mean, that's kind of been my own story. I think that my side has lost in a lot of the major foreign policy debates of the last 15 years when it comes to promoting democracy in the Middle East, um, inter- intervening militarily in places like Syria, and the implications of those those decisions or lack or, or, or lack of decisions. So look, I lost. We lost. Um, the U.S. does not seem to care much about promoting democracy in the Middle East. That said, I want. I still believe what I believe, and I'm going to keep on making the case. And then there's a certain there's a certain pleasure in that in that writerly agency. That if there's something that you think is important, you have to put it on the page. Because if you don't, then you're in a sense suppressing it and you feel like you haven't lived up to your own responsibility. And the other thing that I would say is, I guess as I've gotten older, I care more about being happy. Mm. And I don't think that most of my happiness is going to be found 
in career success. I mean, that it took me a long time to come to that conclusion. I just don't think this is the way to live. And so whether it's like the next big book and then you write the book after that, so on and so forth, I'll do those things because I think they're important and because they give me a sense that I'm I'm contributing and I'm sharing ideas with people and, and that I enjoy doing those things. But that is not the pinnacle. So I think I, I think I'm more ready to be like, hey, you know, I'm gonna write my books, I'm gonna do whatever, but then there's gotta be other big chunks of my life where happiness is truly located. Mm-hmm. And that allows, that would, I think, in theory, allow me to like let go a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, the, the, the tension seems to be to me always, you know, I feel like you're, you're also on the verge of a politician being born. And then, <laughs> and then sometimes you just want to, you know, just chuck it, throw it all away and just, you know, live a normal life like a normal person. Um, Wait, tell me about this being on the verge of, of being a politician thing. Well, I mean, I think we even joked about this with uh, with Jen Murtazashvili last time that you know she was hoping you would go run in the in the Philadelphia Senate race or something, right? Do you remember that <laughs> Philadelphia Senate race? Philadelphia, <laughs> not a uh, Pennsylvania Senate race. I forget. I forget. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no. why is that? Because you're sensing a certain kind of like when I go on when I there's like something. It's almost like when I talk about values or democracy or morality, it sounds like I'm giving almost a sermon. Is it because there's something sermonizing about it? Not sermonizing, no. But I mean, I think, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I, I didn't get to read it again last night. I was going to, but I was too tired. Um, I wanted to get back to, uh, read, uh, Max Weber's essay, Politics as a Vocation. Um, mm. I sent you a, a, a snippet of something that I was working on for the Atlantic Council. Um, uh, gosh, what was the the distinction that was made? Let me find it in our chat. Um, it was, you know, it was a, from a book that was analyzing the Iraq War, um, and he talked about sort of the, the policymaking um, distinction inside how people were thinking inside the administration uh, between, it was like the logic of consequence and the logic of appropriateness. Oh, yes. Yeah. And the the logic of consequence, as I understand it, I haven't read the whole book. I was just reading some reviews of it and, and, and discussions about it. But the logic of, of consequence is more of like what we like to think of as policymakers is, you know, we're trying to achieve X and, you know, what we need, need to do A, B, and C to get X. And the lo- logic of appropriateness is the moral logic, which is uh, X has happened in the world. Uh, this cannot stand. You know, it must be punished, right? Um, I think it's a really interesting way to think about it. And that last night made me think of Max Weber and sort of the, the, the two things that he teases out in that politics as a vocation essay, the ethics of moral conviction and the ethics of responsibility. Um, and, you know, the re- ethics of responsibility is one of sort of, you know, shepherding, I think, if I remember correctly, and the ethics of moral conviction are, you know, the power of values and ideas to drive someone. And again, I, I really should reread it again to before I'm just sort of running off my mouth. But if I remember correctly, you know, it's it's Weber comes out as that, you know, the, the truly successful and world changing politician, you know, balances those two ultimately is, you know, it's you cannot be completely cynical and just, you know, uh, latch onto the ethics of responsibility. It needs to be driven by moral conviction to a certain extent. But at the same time, he, res- he behaves in the real world and necessarily then has to reconcile the two in some important way. Um, 
and I, I feel like you at your most, you know, at the where you would enter into politics would be as a moral conviction politician. But and and, <laughs> and you have and you have, I think, a healthy contempt for anything that comes up as an ethic of responsibility, right? That that I mean, I think you're maybe sympathetic or empathetic that some politicians end up doing that, but you're also greatly frustrated. So I feel like this what you just described between one and the other is like you get you know, really sort of amped up about the moral convictions. And then you're like, ah, but fuck that. <laughs> Maybe I just don't want to be a politician. I just want to go live a normal life and not worry about it. So you just, you, yeah. don't, you don't want to engage with the, the, you know, to be a truly successful politician, the, the balance of those two, you don't want to really engage in that fight. You either want your, 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 the, the moral convictions to be pure or you want like, and if that, if people don't take that, oh, well, and that, that's why you maybe won't end up a politician. Wow, that I like that is a good analysis of me, of me. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is my this is my my uh, my side gig is is analyzing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get. Look, I think I, I think I just don't have the fight in me. I, I'm not. There is, as we've often discussed, a part of me that just wants to be left alone. And I think you're right to recognize that tension. I go back and forth between these poles of really wanting to be engaged and then really wanting to disengage. And that's also, I think, why it's not entirely clear to people who know me whether or not I'm an extrovert or an introvert, because almost by definition, when my friends see me, it's when I'm being extroverted, yeah. unless they, unless there was like a hidden camera in my apartment and they could see me when I'm alone. So there's a kind of selection bias that naturally people are gonna think that I'm extroverted, even if I'm not. But I think I'm. I think that I'm, I have both in me and I kind of vacillate between them in confusing ways, even confusing to myself. Um, but I think, look, that's where some of the creative tension comes from. That's part of what makes me me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's it for the main episode, dear listeners. If you're not a subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get access to subscriber-only essays and bonus episodes, like the rest of this conversation. Shadi and I go on to talk about whether Putin will roast in hell, about the ethics of war, and why you need an idea of God to have a workable idea of justice. Hope to see you there.